1: Up on today's show Sarah Hoffman will join us the deputy leader of the NDP official opposition and education critic we will also speak with dr. Paul Parks the president of the emergency medicine section of the Alberta Medical Association what is going on in healthcare is there a solution how can we fix this and Canadian forces will now be training Ukrainian soldiers in the UK The story that's dominated the headlines uh, in parts of our province and parts of our country, as a matter of fact, in the last couple of days is what's going on with our healthcare system. And as it all came to a head, I think, um, when we got word that Alberta Health Services had directed hospitals in Edmonton to basically start with what's called hallway medicine. Take on one more patient than you can fit on the unit um, so that we can free up space in the ER. Horrible situation to be in. No question about it. Apparently, the order has now been lifted. It was temporary to try and catch up. Um, but obviously the situation in Alberta hospitals, we have closures, right? We have a lot of emergency rooms that have had to shorten hours, uh, close altogether. We've, you know, seen stories with ambulance shortages. You name it. We know our healthcare system is in crisis. Um, so what's the solution? Sarah Hoffman is the deputy leader of the NDP official opposition, an education critic and an MLA for Edmonton, Glenora. She joins us now. Um, it's Hoffman. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Hi, Shay. Good morning. Um, so I'm just, you know, going through uh, the the tweets and the statements that are coming out from the NDP, and uh, a lot of finger pointing at the UCP for what's going on in our healthcare system, um, mismanagement, a di- direct result of UCP mismanagement and treatment of healthcare workers. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, why 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 are you pointing the finger at the UCP?
0: Absolutely. Uh, early August is usually one of the quietest times for hospitals. When I was health minister, it would be. When staff could take a bit of a break where you could get caught back up on some of the backlog because uh, traditionally hospitals are way less busy. Uh, and instead what we've seen is this government has chased doctors out of the province. Uh, many communities, the only way patients can see a doctor is to show up at the emergency department. They threaten to roll back salaries for healthcare care workers, including respiratory therapists who are keeping alive, people who are fighting covid In the middle of this pandemic and it's caused huge impacts on the healthcare system. So the summer, uh, especially early August is when things usually quiet down and they're really at uh, in many hospitals uh, across the province their worst um, the worst it has been in the last 3 years
1: if it's UCP policy and uh, their handling of the healthcare system how do we explain what's going on in BC Manitoba Ontario the Maritimes nationally it was the lead story on Global National last night one of the most prominent hospitals in the country Toronto General is canceling surgeries because They're in the exact same position. Uh, A a young man died on the floor of an emergency room in uh, Fredericton a couple of weeks ago. So uh, where did these doctors that the UCP chased out go? And the UCP aren't working in those provinces.
0: Yeah, well, and arguably it's worse here. We have uh, about 30 hospitals that have either shut down units or shut down completely across the province of Alberta. And that is absolutely because we don't have the staff and because demand is higher than it's ever been. Yeah, but Manitoba and, uh,
1: had, uh, I think, 42 out of 68 hospitals, rural hospitals, uh, shuttering or completely closing emergency departments. So they're in an even worse situation statistically than we are.
0: Well, I wouldn't want to be a patient in any of the Edmonton hospitals who's being shoved into a bed in the hallway. And this is certainly worse than we've seen in most parts of the province um, and in most parts of the country rather, Shay. And yeah, it's not perfect anywhere, but it is absolutely the morale, the uh, demands on healthcare workers, the fact that here we are seeing um, uh, respiratory therapists were told to take a pay cut at the same time as the government was giving out six-figure bonuses to uh, you know, a couple of the leaders uh, in their organization. It's just not fair to the people working in the healthcare system or the patients who are waiting for access to a hospital bed.
1: So what's the fix then? How do you, how do you address this situation if, if it's UCP mismanagement? How do you manage it correctly to get us out of this mess?
0: Yeah, and number one is they need to address the issues that uh, they have created with healthcare workers. They have done everything they can to create uh, chaos, mistrust, disrespect. We've gone two years during a pandemic without doctors having a contract. That is uh, ludicrous. And uh, it's no wonder why doctors uh, need to take some time off. Uh, This happens uh, every year. But uh, part of the burnout is the fact that they feel completely disrespected and that their government doesn't trust them. And they're asked to do more and more and more. So uh, that would definitely be one of the pieces that the current government could do. Um, but I think the other pieces that we've seen for three years, that they just don't uh, care about public health care and they don't uh, uh, make it a value to make sure that they've got a uh, trusted workforce and, and people working throughout the province who know that they're valued. At the beginning, they call them heroes, but then they ask them for pay cuts. That just doesn't show the same level of respect that we expect from a government.
1: Again, uh, what's the fix? What would the NDP government Sit
0: down at the table and sign a contract with doctors. Instead of making excuses and and being rude and and aggressive towards them for the last three years that they've been in government, they could actually sit down and try to come up with some solutions. They could actually fund post-secondary properly Mm. instead of uh, pushing more cuts on post-secondary to make sure that we have the right number of healthcare professionals uh working uh in our province and properly trained and uh they need to make sure that uh, paramedics are full time instead of being offered all of these part time contracts that mean that we have short uh shortfalls when it comes to um, our uh, ambulances, and we've faced so many more um, red alerts over the last six months and, and a year than we've uh, faced at, at any time that I can recall in my life having always lived in Alberta. So um, these are uh, major issues that require uh, leadership. And, and part of being a leader is to sit down at the table, acknowledge that you made mistakes. Uh, and actually come up with solutions with the people who work on the front lines that you need to be able to do their best and help uh, recruit and retain professionals here in the province.
1: Another issue that's been in the headlines this week, and your party's been very vocal about too, is Dr. Hinshaw's pay and um, the quote-unquote bonus. I hate calling it a bonus. I don't know if it is a bonus. But um, to start with, do you not think that Dr. Hinshaw was entitled to some additional compensation for the job that she did during the course of the pandemic?
0: When you, there were chief medical officers of health working all across the province, uh, all across the country, rather. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw nothing in the scale of what was offered here uh, for um, for the chief medical officer of health. Nothing in the scale of six figures uh, representing 60% of somebody's salary as, as an extra uh, one-time bonus pay. Um, after the Fort McMurray wildfires, uh, there were a couple of uh, very modest bonuses. For example, that the, the lead person for emergency management got about $10,000. That's very different than uh, what was given to uh, the leader, uh, 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 the chief medical officer of health, Dr. Hinshaw.
1: Um, so she did deserve it or she didn't deserve it?
0: Well, I think that the UCP at the same time, uh, let me start by saying I don't think anyone thinks that a bonus in that scale uh, is appropriate. Okay. I also think that um, at the same time, they're asking for health care workers to take rollbacks they're offering these major bonuses to to one employee who is willing to validate their plans that caused uh, uh, extreme havoc on the healthcare system. They show nothing but disrespect to uh, frontline healthcare workers, and at the same time, they're giving out one massive bonus. If you have that kind of money in your budget, then you have the room to make decisions to support uh, workers across the province, not uh, just one uh, one uh, medical officer. So uh, there have been doctors and nurses across the province who've been working their tails off as well, restaurant, sure, lab techs. Uh, they were offered pay cuts at the same time as a 60% bonus was paid out.
1: Um, okay, two things on that. To to go. She was given the bonus to go along with their plans. I don't. Do you know that to be true? Jason Nixon says it was basically an overtime payment. And second of all, it's not the provincial It's not Jason Kenney's cabinet that gave her the bonus. It's AHS. Right. Do I have that wrong? No,
0: she's a, she's an employee of Alberta House.
1: Right. So She's an employee of the government of Alberta Health. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I was just looking through, you know, other years. In, in 2018, Marcia Nelson, who is Deputy Minister of the Executive Council, earned $129,000 in cash and non-cash benefits above and beyond her $487,000 in salary. The WC president that year earned 177000 in benefits over and above his salary of $730,000 that year. Were you aware of those?
0: Uh, some of those were pension uh, opt-outs, I believe. So instead of receiving... Their actual compensation through their pension, uh, I think that they, they took uh, other forms were writ- which were written into their contracts. But there was nothing in this scale in terms of, you know, direct bonuses. And there's nothing in this scale across Canada in response to the same public health crisis of COVID.
1: Okay, I'm running out of time. I just want to go back to uh, the, the statement. You said she was paid basically to ensure her compliance. That, that's That's the allegation that your party is making?
0: I, I didn't say that those words but what what media yeah, uh, yeah help maybe me clarify because what was heard but what what I am saying is that people across this province have been working uh ridiculous overtime. they've been putting their uh, backs into they a teacher's get paid for it, don't they no most salary employees are on salary and that's their job is to to deliver within their um, their pay on the job that's required of them So during other major disasters like Fort McMurray wildfire, um, there were people that this is what their job is: is to respond to natural disasters, to respond to emergencies, Mm -hmm. to respond to the pressures. That's why we have people in these positions is to prepare for these days and to be able to respond to them. And in terms of uh, other healthcare professionals, they were asked to take rollbacks or they were told that their jobs were going to be eliminated. And these were the kinds of uh, compensation that they were given at the same time we were asking them to do extraordinary things. So I. think uh the fact that the government found it worthy to give you know a, a six figure 60% mm-hmm. bonus um, to one employee is really disrespectful when everyone else who was on the front lines was facing a very different uh, set of messages and tone from the government when they said that there just wasn't simply enough to be able to you know, maintain their pay, let alone give them any kind of increase.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, the optics on it are absolutely horrible. I agree with you completely on that. Uh, Ms. Hobbin, unfortunately, I'm out of time, but I do appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. Uh, the situation with our provincial health care system, it, it, Sarah Hoffman is right. It's troubling. The the issue, though, is it's not just here. It, it's right across the country. Are there things that the UCP government could do better? I'm sure there are, undoubtedly. Um, but I, I just think it's unfair to characterize this as a uniquely Alberta problem because it's not. We're seeing it right across the country right now. But in talking with our province, as you heard this week, um, another urgent care center in Calgary announced they would be closing or not closing, but reducing the hours that they're open. Um A memo went out to Edmonton hospitals directing them to make sure that every unit takes one more patient than they actually have room for. So basically just put them in the hallway, treat them in the hallway, obviously not ideal and that order has since been uh, lifted, but um it was done in order to free up space in emergency rooms because we know how backlogged they are and we know how backlogged ambulances are. I mean, it just goes on. It just goes on. It's not good. There are issues. There's no doubt about it. So why? What's going on? We're going to chat with uh, Dr. Paul Parks, who is president of the emergency Medic- medicine section of the Alberta Medical Association. Dr. Parks, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time.
2: Uh, thanks for having me on this important topic.
1: It really is so important, and obviously, uh, no nobody says this is optimal. This is this is bad. We got a we got a problem on our hands. But give us a snapshot here. I know you actually work in an ER as well. So w- what's going on in Alberta hospitals right now that we're at the point where you know, hey, just stick them in a hallway, or we're going to have to reduce hours. What is the situation? What's going on?
2: It's it's dire, to be honest. You know, I've been talking about this for months and months. But to be blunt, I'll tell you all of the. All of the hospitals across the province are struggling, and you know Edmonton. That memo of putting people in the hallway—that yeah. that's just an added layer of disaster mode functioning. Um, you know that that bought us some time so that we could see the critically ill, so we could try to keep uh, providing the services in the emergency departments. But I, I have to tell you that 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 kind of state that we're we're really struggling in the middle of the summer right now—it's it's beyond dire, really, because. Typically, our volumes would be a bit lower in the summer. We wouldn't have the respiratory viruses. We wouldn't have a lot of those admissions. And, and to see that our our entire acute care system is struggling um, with capacity in August, we're, we're terrified of what, what the upcoming uh, fall might look like.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I think a lot of people share your concern. Um, taking a look at where we are now, all of these actions that are being taken are basically to try and make sure that Care can be maintained at all levels, right? Like when you take a look at the Edmonton situation, it's okay. We're going to stick somebody in a hallway, which isn't great, but that'll free up a, a space in the ER. It's all trying to sort of massage the bottleneck, right, and, and limit it as much as possible.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it, you know, the simplest way to put it would be it's a way to spread the pain. Um, that you know, and and the pain's pretty bad out there right now because even on the hospital wards, for example. They're already over capacity yeah, where, yeah. where, the, where they might be, you know, 100% capacity is the max. They're at 150 up there. And then what's happening is in an emergency department, say that has 50 beds, there can be times where 50 care spaces, there's 50 patients who should be admitted in the hospital with really serious conditions like strokes, heart attacks, broken bones, everything that they need to be in the hospital, but there's no space for them. And so, so when we get to that disaster mode where, where they officially say, listen, we have to push up the next most stable person to the middle of a hallway uh, for hours to days mm-hmm. just so we can open up one more space in the eMERGE so we can offload those ambulances so we can see the really sick uh, people who are presenting to our emergency departments. So that, that, that's where the state is as a kind of a regular baseline now, to be honest with you. And that's how difficult it is that we're we're uh, the environment we're functioning in.
3: Uh,
1: talking with Dr. Paul Parks, president of the emergency medicine section of the Alberta Medical Association. Uh, Doctor, what happened? I mean, I know healthcare has always been stressed. It's always been, you know, operating in the barest of margins, but it seems we've tipped past that into a point now where we're having to make some really hard decisions and close the doors in some uh, facilities. What happened? How did we get here? What is the problem?
2: So I think it's, it's very fair to say we've been struggling with capacity and you know access blocking issues up to and before the pandemic but the pandemic really exposed our system um and part of the big there's a couple of pieces one was there's no question that almost three years of a pandemic has really worn out and burnt out a lot yeah. of our frontline staff like there's no question a lot have left a lot have quit a lot of moved to other way other provinces so that's one two unfortunately in alberta you know where they talk about that this is a problem across the country and it is to a degree but in alberta our government decided to wage war against healthcare workers, tore up contracts, told nurses and paramedics and everybody you can think of that they're overpaid and, um, you know, so very hostile kind of environment. So we haven't been able to recruit people in, into into our, our province. And then, and then the third piece is we have just increased volumes of really complex sick people because a lot of care was delayed over the last couple of years, like surgeries, postponed, things like that, cancer care, um, so it's that perfect storm. And now now we're in this we're in this position now where I'd say unless the government comes out and policymakers and Alberta comes out and says, listen, this is a national kind of, you know, a, a provincial emergency Declare it for what it is, and then create a plan to address it. We're just going to be putting band-aids on it. We're just going to be oh, waits are ten hours. Let's try to do this, move this one patient to a hallway so we can see if we can help. We have to declare this as the crisis it is, and and create a you know a, a provincial workforce strategy, and and find out how how many nurses are we missing, how many docs are we missing, what's the plan to fix this?
1: Um, I, I think you're right. We will continue to put band-aids on it as we are right now. I, I guess the question is, if this is the new baseline going forward, and as you say, you're expecting things to get worse, I mean, th- that backlog of people who deferred care, is there any chance this is going to get better? Or like, like uh, it, no one has a crystal ball, but is it possible to look six months into the future, one year, two years, and see where we might be if things don't suddenly get addressed properly?
2: we have to be optimistic that if, if we try to fix the problem so if we declare it's a problem and try to fix it yep. then we have to be hopeful that we could if we don't if we carry on like this if the government carries on pretending like you know what it's here's the most frustrating thing from healthcare workers on the front lines that i'll tell you right now is basically we're screaming listen we're on fire we're on fire or we're drowning help us help us and The government's response right now has mostly been, well, you know what, every province is on fire, everyone's drowning, Uh, you know, so and that's all their response is. So unless we do a very concerted uh, response with some big, there's big picture ideas out there that we can do, like a workforce plan, like we can improve home care, long-term care. Um, You know, there's lots of pieces we could do that would help our system 100%. Uh, it's just not clear to us that this has been prioritized, that anybody is doing this in a big level way.
1: And, and you know, obviously, the relationship with healthcare workers is strained between the provincial government and the healthcare workers. I'm wondering, you know, back in I think it was January, a, a pretty sizable increase was agreed to for nurses in our province. Has that changed it at all? I think 4.25 percent under the new contract they agreed to that deal. Has that helped ease relations at all?
2: I think it's better than not having a contract. But I'll tell you that one thing that needs to be really clearly stated is it's not just about money and percentages. That's obviously important. People yeah, need to work a sure. wage and be paid for what they do. But it's also being valued and respected. And so, as an example that I can tell you, uh, physicians. It's been over two years. We don't have a contract with the government. But but what that means, it's not just what physicians get paid, but it's also there's no working relationship for frontline physicians to put input to the government to, to say, hey, here's our expertise, here's, here's work with us so we can fix the system. That's what it means when the government is adversarial against these different groups like nurses, respiratory therapists, and physicians. And so I think getting contracts is absolutely the first start. But the second would be the public should be telling everybody, listen, our most valuable resource in the healthcare system are trained, skilled people who provide the care. You could build a hundred more hospitals in Alberta right now, and if you don't have caring, skilled nurses and healthcare workers to treat the patients, they're useless. Yeah. They're just big buildings. Yeah. So, so that's what we need the public to demand and say. Listen, this is our. We I think it's fair to say Albertans value. Access to timely, safe health care as a top priority, and and I think government should too. that
1: And like you said, you know, some of these big picture items and contracts and, and things like that and uh, home care and all the rest, absolutely things that need to be looked at, but we're at a crisis. So if, you know, you're, like you're saying, you're calling out, we're on fire here, we need help. What does that help look like today, Dr. Parks? What happens today to, to make things better for not only you, but for Albertans who need emergency care in this province? What can we do today?
2: Yeah, 100%. And I should I should echo. That's why I'm speaking to you and we're advocating is we want to be able to take care of sick people so we don't want them to not come in. And so I think the very first step, declare it as the crisis and the problem it is, then, then, then that allows us to mobilize some resources where we can do things. We have an advantage of being one health authority so we could load level... And where if certain hospitals are one hundred and seventy percent capacity where others are eighty five out in the rural areas, maybe we could spread that load a little yeah. bit. It might be painful because maybe maybe family members have to travel a bit further to go see their loved ones uh, but But the whole point there is that if we have a big provincial wide approach where we can look at say here's a, here's what we're going to do for workforce planning. here's what we're going to do for very short term really emergency type disaster measure mode. So we can relieve, decant the pressure a bit. So then we can put in the medium and long-term plans. That's what we need right now. And AHS is obviously working furiously to try sure. to do some of these things. And that's what that memo is. That's that's an example of it, right? Of putting. Listen, we got to put people in hallways. That's that's one measure that's being done. But then big pieces like tying into long-term care and tying into hospitals and other places and, um, you know, load leveling and workforce uh, shifting and things like that, that needs to be done at a very high-level concerted, provincial, led by the government with all the major stakeholders. And that doesn't exist right now. that That's one of the problems we're screaming and begging, begging for
1: help on. Dr. Parks, exactly the kind of insight we were looking for. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you.
2: Families have a lot going on.
1: Yesterday, and uh, Canada's defense minister um, bolstered Canada's commitment to Ukraine. That's how it was characterized. Anita and Anand called Russia's invasion an assault on the rules international order and announced that Canada would well, not begin training Ukrainian soldiers in the UK, but would resume training Ukrainian soldiers anyway. Uh, let's get details on what this plan looks like with Andrew Rasulis, who is a uh, defense expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thank you for joining us again. Appreciate your time.
3: Great to be back, Shay.
1: Um, now, this training, it's not new. We used to do this, correct, up until the invasion began, right?
3: Oh, yes. This was uh, very much up uh, unifier, uh, which was conducted in western Ukraine in various uh, places, where we trained Ukrainians. We had a contingent of Canadian troops, roughly, again, 225 uh, soldiers there, uh, training up Ukrainians in a variety of military skills when the war started. Uh in, uh in in February uh our troops were pulled out for a while, they stayed in Poland and then they returned to Canada. Now what's uh Britain took the initiative in June to start a new type of program to train uh the Ukrainian military in Britain at one of the at several of their bases in fact. And so Canada, the Netherlands and New Zealand have now agreed to add on their own contingents to bolster this training now the key thing about this training as opposed to the training that had occurred in ukraine is that this is now very basic soldier training and the reason for that is that uh the ukrainian military as well as the russian military are suffering very high casualties in what has now become a war of attrition so the priority for the ukrainian military is replenishment of those casualties with new soldiers. So that's why these are essentially civilians okay. that are being taken, given the basic skills, and sent into combat as soon as possible.
1: Wow, interesting. Okay, so what does that training look like? I mean, is it, like, would we
3: call it boot camp? Is that basically what we're doing here? Yes, exactly. It's, it's basic soldier skills. Um, the Canadian military is doing uh, five what's called five-week serials. So in those five-week serials, uh, you do things like uh, the attack, the defense, uh, patrolling, marksmanship, that kind of thing. These okay. are the fundamentals of how you operate as a, as a basic infantry soldier.
1: Interesting. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and I also heard there's some work in training them to handle the equipment that we've sent over. That'll be part of another training component, I guess.
3: Yeah. This is this is a sidebar because uh, because we gave them those the artillery, the howitzers, yeah. uh, the one five fives. And so uh, we are going to be giving some training to some artillery uh, personnel of the Ukrainian forces on those artillery pieces. Uh, but th- that is a that is an important, but it's a sidebar. The primary emphasis of this whole training initiative is to train basic soldiers, take the civilians. Train them up as basic soldiers, basic infantry, send them back into the fight.
1: I saw yesterday and in making this announcement. Actually, it was in uh, the, the post announcement question. Uh, she said, This is being welcomed uh, by our allies. She says, This is our niche. This is where Canada excels. Is that, is that how it's seen in the international community? We're really good trainers.
3: We, we are indeed. Uh, we, we've been doing this for decades. Um, um, when I was in the Defense Department, I was Director of Military Training Cooperation. I was responsible for part of that Canadian initiative worldwide. We have a very long history uh, and a successful history of training foreign militaries uh, to uh, Canadian military standards, which are respectively NATO standards. Right. And so, yeah, our soldiers are very good at that.
1: Um the, the conflict itself, the wider conflict, uh, what's going on in Ukraine, to me, and uh, uh, we haven't been on top of it as much as we used to be, but I'm just wondering, give us an update. It seems to me like it's sort of ground into almost a, an awful stalemate with no progress being made by either side. Is that fair?
3: In a very macro sense. It's a war of attrition. Uh, it's stalemated, but there are uh, important movements in the battle, so I will give you a very broad sketch. So there are three axes of combat going from south to north so in the south on the black sea coast there is the kersian oblast and and the kersian city in that area the ukrainians are attacking uh the russian positions there russia took that in early part of the war as part of establishing that land bridge from russia proper to crimea so this is from a strategic point of view perhaps the most important battle taking place there is, uh, uh, further up in the Donbass, Donetsk, the, the Russians have been over the last few days in, been incrementally moving westward very slowly, but now they appear to have paused because they need to reinforce uh, their defensive positions in the south against the Ukrainian attack in Kurjan. And the third, which is more of a, a sidebar temporarily now, is Kharkiv City, where the Russians are Pounding up a bit on the rush on the Ukrainian positions as a kind of a diversionary attack, but as I say, the main emphasis is in the south and we're going and we're going to see very heavy we are seeing very heavy fighting we will see very heavy fighting throughout august through into September at some point, and then we will see how the battlefield shapes the political situation because right now There is no appetite for neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians to reach any kind of political compromise.
1: Uh, And Anne said yesterday it's entering a dangerous phase with Russia looking to inflict inflict long-term damage. So that's what you're talking about, just sort of grinding it down, a war of attrition at this point.
3: Yeah, it's a war of attrition, and when we get to the fall, the question becomes how much are either side, what's the exhaustion level? Because this is heavy burnout. And so the troops we're training, that's part of the burnout. Okay. And so we're, we're resupplying troops that are burning out And we're, trying, we're throwing more back in But at some point, people reach And armies and, and states, countries Reach points of exhaustion uh, World War I, the end, is, is a classic case
1: Andrew, as always Great insight, thank you so much for joining us today and You're very welcome, Shane, anytime Thanks for listening today To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them Wherever you find your favourite podcasts If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate And review us